All right, everyone, we're live. So uh, welcome to this new series that we're calling the Clubhouse. Uh, this is for altright.com in general. This is for everyone now. This is a pilot episode, free and available to the entire internet. Um, but in the future, uh, we are going to make this Clubhouse available for Alt-Right Plus subscribers. So this is that extra special thing that you get when you support us. And we need your support. Uh, so, <laughs> so you're supporting the whole website. You're supporting the Alt-Right in general. But, um, but uh, and, and, and that is necessary. But again, this is this thank you gift that we're going to give you every week. I'm going to do it um, most of the time. Daniel Freeberg also will do it. Uh, we might even have a guest host come in one week if uh, you know we're sick or doing a conference or traveling or whatever. And um, we're gonna we we might do it in the form of an AMA sometimes. I mean, I might just turn on the camera and start talking and uh, take questions from the crowd. I'm sure we could fill an hour or two with that. Um, but uh, but I, I think one of the I think better shows will be will occur when we have a guest on. Um, the other aspect about this is that I want to keep it very casual. Um, this is a conversation between gentlemen, and we'll take questions. That's why I, I like this idea of calling it the clubhouse. You know, it's a, it's a special clubhouse. You know, invitation only, members only. Uh, but also, it is relaxed, and uh, it is a gentleman talking among peers, and a few gentle women as well. Um, so anyway, without further ado, uh, Millennial Woes. This is a man who now needs no introduction. Uh, I first, uh, I, I think I first learned about Millennial Woes around two years ago in 2015 when there was this YouTuber, I, I maybe I'd heard his name before or seen him, but I, I didn't really know a lot about him. And, uh, and then he started talking seriously and very thoughtfully about the 2015 MPI conference. He interviewed some participants. And, um, and I knew right away that this is someone who is going to influence the movement. It's going to be a part of it. And it's going to have a very important perspective on it. And um, although we've only met, um, how many times have we met in person? Just once, I guess. Once. 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 But, uh, but uh, I, we've become friends, too. So I consider Millennial Woes a friend and a colleague. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, just this past year. Uh, we, could, we could talk about the last two years and uh, kind of look back a little bit. It's getting to be that time of year, the end of the year. So uh, I, we're going to call this from Hailgate to here. But first off, Millennial Woes, Colin, welcome. Well, hello, and thank you for inviting me on. My pleasure. Um, so yes, it was a year ago today, more or less, or a year ago next ah, week, I guess. Next, yes, a week from today, it'll be a year. Um, that we first met in person. And, uh, and that the occasion, of course, was the 2016 MPI conference. Um, let's, let's go back. What, what were some of your thoughts going into that event? Uh, and then this was before the election. I mean, I, I invited you over the summer or something, but, but uh, well before Trump won. And, and at a point when, we'll be honest, a lot of us, you know, we, we hoped you would win, but we certainly were far, far from sure. 
uh, about it. Um, what were some of your thoughts going in? And then we can start talking about. Well, yeah, yeah. I I did uh, record a monologue about this a few weeks ago, but I, I didn't uh, upload it for various reasons. I didn't think it was quite the time. I was intending to do it, to upload it actually on the anniversary. So I might do that still. But in the meantime, I'll basically cover the same ground here. At that time, the alt-right was very much on its, uh, it, it was on a high, the biggest, I mean, it, everything, and it was safe. It was that period when everything was just going really well. And it, like one thing after another. And of course, that was kind of embodied by Hillary failing because uh, she was, she became, just as Trump became our sort of, uh, you know, the God Emperor figure. Hillary became the, you know, the, the demon witch uh, sort of figure, and she was failing, and it was hilarious. And and of course, she did give the speech. I think it was in Reno where she talked about us. That gave us a lot more exposure, which was totally unnecessary on her part. It was a crazy move, but anyway, she did it. Or was, and um, or was it? Hmm? I think it was yeah. <laughs> we can discuss. That. Well, indeed. Yeah. Not yeah, just because it benefited opposition. us. I, I think it was actually a highly strategic move that makes a lot of sense and, was, and is arguably brilliant on her part. Well, uh, okay, do you want to do that just now? Sure. Uh, what, I think there were, there were a lot of misconceptions about the Hillary campaign and the Democrats in general uh, from our movement because our movement because we're online, we're, 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 we're marinating in this stuff. We, we, we pick out the extremes of the Hillary campaign and this, the SJW movement and all that kind of stuff. And we'll, we'll look at all of that and talk about how radical and strange it all is, how just overtly, insanely anti-white it all is and all that kind of stuff. That is not the perception of your average normie. And that is also not the presentation that Hillary was attempting. Uh, Hillary was attempting a major realignment of the party system in which millions of suburban white people who were freaked out by Donald Trump as a Pied Piper of nationalist and Breitbart people and all that kind of stuff, um, and that they were going to freak out and there was going to be a major realignment with all that voting block of suburban whites, neoconservatives, who had also become Democrats. I mean, that, that's not very hard for them. Um, and so that the foreign policy establishment would become Democrats. Uh, they basically ran a ticket of two boring middle-aged, I mean, baby boomer white people of Tim Kaine and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and they were attempting a major realignment where they were going to isolate uh, the, you know, the, the white, rural whites who are nationalistic, who are kind of rough and tumble, you could say. And then they were going to marry them with the alt-right, which is vaguer, a, a more nebulous term at that point. That would, it, you know, the alt-right would include Alex Jones and Breitbart and us and so on. Uh, and, and everyone's favorite, Milo. Yes, Milo is the uh, is the uh, the leader out in front, bathing in <laughs> blood. <laughs> uh, you know, you know the the the, the you know the real uh, the pillars of the alt right. You know, bathing in pig's blood, 
uh, money and black men dressing. And what are what are the other major pillar of the alt right? Uh, marrying black men. <laughs> yes, marrying blacks while in drag, bathing in pig's blood. That's the alt right. Anyway, yeah. Um, she wanted to she wanted to marry this voting block of rural whites, nationalistic, populist, conservative rural whites with a new intellectual vanguard that is us, but also it also much wider. You know, Bannon. Alex Jones, that, that kind of people. And she was attempting a major realignment, which would have led her to, um, I mean, again, it didn't work, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad strategy if it just doesn't work the first time, or, yeah. you know, or yeah. it doesn't mean it's unintelligent or something. And she was basically trying to create a new uh, coalition, a major realignment, and that would yeah. have actually brought a lot of white people into the Democratic yeah. You're right. I, I think perhaps because the the gamble didn't work out, we overlook what what it was for, what it, what it was intended to do in the first place. So yeah, she was attempting to demonise as much of the right as possible by, well, likening it to us basically and destroying the conservative <laughs> so, movement by by just pushing. She recognised as we do. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit, but she recognised as we do that the conservative movement is totally outmoded useless, doesn't really speak to anyone. And she was going to basically promote the alt-right as a new intellectual vanguard. Effectively, she's doing everything that we are trying to do. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, whatever. But it, it doesn't, none of this means that it was a bad strategy. And none of this means that this won't, this couldn't actually happen uh, going mm. forward. It might, she might have just been a little bit early. But that's what she was trying to do. She was not, it was not an act of desperation. It was a calculated move. Mm, mm. But it didn't, it, for, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And actually it benefited, not, not only did it not harm Donald Trump, it also benefited us. And, you know, in a big way. So, so that's the period, that's the point that we were at. And I don't know what people, what the general feeling was about the election. Like, did people think Trump was going to win or Hillary was going to win? Obviously, the media were all saying that Hillary was going to win. Um, but I think there were, I mean, it's, it's funny because things move so fast and it's difficult to remember how things actually were. But I think there were voices saying, no, Trump is going to win. And in the meantime, the alt-right, one way or the, or the other, whatever we believed, we had this uh, period of optimism and happiness and strength and also being relatively carefree even with Hillary demonizing us we were still it was st it, well yeah a carefree period and I think that it was after the well so then if we get to the NPI conference by that time I had been in America for th nearly three weeks and it was basically my first time in America so there was all that wrapped up in my own perceptions of the conference um, I had been at a a minor uh, conference in Seattle prior to that, this was a much grander affair and it was obviously very exciting. Um, and I, I met various famous people, um, <laughs> Jared Taylor as, as well. Um, and it was, it was really nice. And there was a sense of, of course, by this time, Trump had won. He had won the election. So there was a, a huge sense of optimism. And I, I'm not saying that that was uh, that that has all been frittered away, but certainly the the environment has become harsher. Oh, 
Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. I, and I yeah, think that, a lot of that optimism has gone away. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I can still look back on that period with a, well, it's funny, the way I describe it almost reveals it. I look back upon that period nostalgically in a way, because it was the, yes. it was the, you know, I have always been almost, you know, anti-system and, and certainly anti-GOP. I saw the GOP as, you know, they are a, a, a red herring, they are a backstabbing, awful group of people who want to benefit from white angst while never doing anything for white people. And, yes. and I think I'm justified in my total cynical attitude towards them. But Yeah, but well, they're living for the here and now, aren't they? They don't have this idea that of the long term, because if you want to secure no. the interests of white people, you have to look at the long term. Right. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I'm I'm not one of these people who is black pilled. I mean that that was my assessment of the situation. Uh, I'm also not one of these people who can't change, who can't be flexible when something new happens. And the way I've always described it is that we we were playing this chess game, and we saw the layout of the chessboard. We could analyze it. And with, in 2015, in June of 2015, with Donald Trump, it was like someone put a new chess piece on the board. You know, yes, and it, and it wasn't, I remember you said that before. Yeah, it was like a queen. It, you know, it, it was a major, it was a major factor. And, and so the whole game changed. I mean, it's like, oh, wow, okay, something's new. And so, yeah, of course I changed my attitude. I mean, I didn't abandon my earlier, you know, extreme skepticism towards the GOP, I, I just felt like, look, this is actually new and different. Like, I would never have gotten excited about a Ted Cruz. Like, I, you know, oh, Ted Cruz, Pepe Cruz, you know, he's gonna <laughs> you know, destroy the GOP establishment and be a nationalist. I mean, I would never, if anyone, if the alt-right started doing that, I would be like the, you know, black-pilling cynic in the crowd being like, guys, this is dumb. Uh, no, but, no, there was good reason to to rally behind Donald Trump. He was exciting, and you know any liberals who happen to be listening into this, that's not me saying that Donald Trump agrees with us. But he was an inspiring figure. Yeah, and he was genuinely nationalist. He was a nationalist of the heart. He probably was not a nationalist, or is not a nationalist of the head, and that's actually his big problem. But he is a nationalist of the heart and of the gut, and yes. so. You know, as I've said a million times, but yes, for liberals watching, Donald Trump is not all right. He's never been all right. He's not an identitarian. He's never been an identitarian. But but he he's a he's a nationalist in his heart of hearts, and I think he probably still is. Uh, and and that's something that that can't change. Uh, but it was a new. So we were what Hillary codified in her speech and I guess it was August or late July or something of 2016. Yes, it was, it was the 25th of August, I think it was. 25th of August, so late August, in fact. What she codified was something that we were all feeling and happening. And, and that's, again, why I think it was a brilliant move on her part. And, you know, B Bannon is, Bannon says, oh, it's so stupid. It's just, you know, and this like Bannon way of talking. It's so stupid, it's so stupid. Because these are just normal Americans. But then uh, uh, Hillary is associating us with like Nazis and oh, so stupid, so stupid. Well, no, it, it was not so stupid. It was actually 
quite intelligent. It made sense and it, it codified something that we all felt was happening organically and that we were going to be Donald Trump's vanguard. Um, I think a lot of people uh, felt like they would have a place in the administration. I mean, um, I didn't because uh, even, I mean, I, I was not as well known then as I am now, but I was still well known and I was getting interviewed, you know, all the mainstream places. And uh, I, I knew that I, I would certainly be far too toxic to uh, be involved in the, in the, in the uh, administration. But I, I think a lot of people in the alt-right really felt that they would, or that Donald Trump would start appointing the, the, a kind of lighter version of the alt-right. Not, not the alt-light as we know it now, like, you know, basically lying people like Cernovich and Sobiak, but, but you know, Ban, you know, when, when Bannon was declared, you know, chief, he was chief strategist and then he was, what, what was his title actually when he was in the administration? I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment. Oh, I don't know, but it was something in the Security Council, wasn't it? Well, he or was on the Security Council, but he, he had a different, it doesn't matter. You know, he, he it was a somewhat vague, but but clearly powerful position and um, vague in, in, in terms of its title. Um, but I... Uh, yeah, so we all felt that we were going in. And a lot of people who were anonymous or who were minor figures, I don't think it was totally outrageous. I mean, it was it was aspirational, not outrageous for them to think that, oh, I'm going to start working for Trump. We're going to be his strategy team. Well, and if you think about it, right, because that does sound ambitious, but look at the, the opposite. How many Antifa and SJWs, who are certainly left-wing extremists, uh, would be optimistic about getting jobs in a Hillary administration. Right. Or a Bernie administration, if, if something like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, definitely. I would want to work. Um, so, I guess... <laughs> so, um, I suppose we should, we should discuss what happened at NPI. Well, in the actual event itself was, was, a, was a blur. I mean, I... Just rewinding a bit to 2015. Um, well, you've got to remember my speech, surely. Oh, no, I don't. And I don't mean that as an insult. I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm just being, I'm honest as always. I don't remember anything. Right. Uh, it, it was, um, well, I think there were four. I think there were four speeches and uh, red eyes were in the other room and it was all quite cozy. Um, I mean, I had a, I loved it. I really did oh, have a great time. It was time. great. I mean, uh, what, it, just to rewind real quickly, I mean, I had done uh, conferences before. Like, just to give you context, give our listeners context, in uh, 2011, that was the first MPI conference. And it was a great event. Um, I spoke there. Uh, Sam Dixon spoke. Uh, Thomas Love Sunich spoke. Uh, Byron Roth spoke. I might be forgetting getting a couple others, very interesting event. Um, but we announced that event in May of 2011. And we, you know, we were marketing, sending out emails. I mean, we got up to like 75 attendees by September of 2011. And that was after like furious marketing or something like that. In 2017, when I announced the MPI conference for, for 2017, we sold out in 48 hours. So, I mean, it, it, we're just in a different world. Uh, yeah. But 
in, in 2015, so four years after the first MPI conference, we had 175 people. Um, I had effectively no help. I mean, I, I did have some people like um, Evan and, some, and, and, uh, and actually Henry Wolf from Amarin. I had some people who really helped me, like gave essential help to me on the day of. But everything going up to 10 a.m. on the day of the conference, it was just me. I mean, there was no one else. Uh, Bill Regner would get on the phone and talk with us talk to the Reagan building people about menus or whatever. But in terms of doing the nitty gritty, it was me. And so I actually had one of those situations where I think I might've slept like four hours before the event. So um, I was, we did a fundraising dinner uh, with, with Taki actually in New York city on a, I guess it was on a Thursday night. And uh, there's this trick. This, my kryptonite is, is port. So whenever I drink port, I don't, it's the chemicals in that beverage that just, it doesn't work with me. I cannot sleep. I think it's too much sugar, combination of alcohol, sugar, brandy, whatever. I can't sleep. So um, I, 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 and I was also just nervous. So I didn't sleep on Thursday night. And then we went to DC on Friday and I was just running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And then I had to like clean up my speech that night. So I think I slept like one hour. <laughs> that wow. Friday I mean, it wow. was totally insane. I, I think I, at, at 11 PM on Saturday, I went into my hotel room and as soon as my head hit the pillow, I, I was unconscious. Uh, but anyway, um, that was that. And that was 175 people. So we had, we had shown, we had demonstrated that the movement was growing. And then we went to uh, the MPI conference in 2016. We had upwards of 300. Uh, it was the amount of media attention. I mean, we had like a handful of journalists come and ask us questions at the 2015 conference. In 2016 conference, we had a, like, a live press conference with over 100 journalists from BBC, from you know, Germany, from, from NPR. I mean, it was just totally insane. I was just giving interviews. So I would just go talk with someone. I would go give like 15 minutes to a German interviewer. And then I'd just move off and I'd talk to another one. And then I went to the CNN thing. The, the guy, the black guy, isn't his name Kamal or something? I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being racist. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that, the bit they took from that was like, there'll never be a, a black James Bond. Uh, but uh, which... <laughs> I'm fine with. I, I think it's good to communicate. It's great to communicate in a fun and accessible fashion. And that, that, that was one of those. But um, I, the whole thing was an absolute blur. Uh, I don't remember anything. I don't remember what I said in the, I mean, it, it was just totally insane. I was just high on, a, on adrenaline. Um, and, and then it all capped off with Saturday night, which was really fun. Everyone was in high spirits. Um, there was a cash bar, so I'm sure a lot of people were in some degree of, of inebriation. But I, everyone was euphoric. Even if you didn't have a single drop of alcohol, everyone was drunk, effectively, on power and success. And <laughs> Optimism. I mean, I, there was just yeah. a great feeling. Uh, yeah. and I didn't drink, and I don't drink, so I was completely sober. But it was a really nice atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, and, and I, I remember like thinking about an hour before and I was like, oh, right. 
where's the text of my speech? So I, I, I you know, worked on this for a while beforehand. I got the speech together. Um, and, uh, and then we, you know, Kevin McDonald give a great talk in, in a very Kevin McDonald way. It was more, it was more academic and so on. Um, Matthew Tate, you know, gave some rousing toast. Uh, Bill Regnery spoke. I mean, it, it was just one thing after another. Yeah. And, uh, and there was and also, I, yeah. Who else spoke? Jared Taylor didn't speak. Um, no. Matt Tate spoke, Kevin McDonald, um, and, and there was me, obviously. Um, and I can't remember who, oh, there was a fourth one. But the, Roger um, Devlin addressed, he d addressed the conference during the day. Ah, yes, that's right, yes. Um, yes and we, we had a kind of, it, the, the conference started very slowly. We, we had Peter. At, and Peter Brimelow, Peter Brimelow. Yeah, Peter Brimelow and, and Jared. And, and the conference kind of started uh, more, you know, in their type of way, like it was about immigration reform and all this kind of stuff. And I think the conference just built up this momentum where it got radicaler and radicaler as the, as the minutes yeah. went on until yeah. that night, you know, everyone was, was crazy. And, you know, again, my speech, every, what's going to be remembered from my speech are the last lines, which is hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. But those lines, I mean, let me give you a little background. I mean, first off, the speech itself, I, I, it is unfortunate when people don't read the whole speech because what I was saying in that speech was... I really liked that speech. Yeah. I thought there were lots of really good bits in it. I, I agree. I, and it, it was uh, a very serious speech. Um, one thing just to add, um, a lot of people have suggested that I was drunk or drunk on power or whatever, and that I just said it on a spur of the moment. Uh, the hail Trump thing. That's not true at all. Um, when I when I go into working on a speech, I, I, I ask myself, who's the audience? So what do they what do they want to hear, and what do they need to hear? And then I'll also think about an intro and a conclusion. So how do we lead into the talk, and then how do we end it? And and obviously, ending on a flourish is a great idea. So. Um, I had planned to say hail Trump and some, some version of that line. Um, and at that point, even if Trump had lost, I would have said that actually. So that was there from the beginning, that highly provocative. I knew it was going to be very provocative, but I, I certainly could not have imagined it would, it would just go viral in this like viral on the level of tens of millions of people. Um, but I, I did know that it was going to be provocative, and I, I also thought it was that it was that right tone because it was genuine. It expressed a real emotion, and it was right on that edge of uh, it was edgy in the sense that it wasn't ridiculous, it wasn't stupid, but it was edgy. It was right on that edge, and so I I I I, I had planned to do that from the very beginning. And uh, so anyway, I said, you know, to be normal again, we have to be great again. Hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. I raised a glass. Um, due to the lights, uh, because, you know, we had, we had lights coming at me. Um, and, and also just, you know, I, I raised a glass and went to, you know, left stage. I did not know that anyone gave a Roman salute in the audience. Well, I was sitting at the right of the room and 
I certainly didn't see anyone doing it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it was a very small number of people who did it. It was like, yeah. I think it was about between three and five people. Yeah. Half a dozen at the most. I mean, it, it was just, it, it just happened. People had been doing that. Um, I, 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 when I, so anyway, I told, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I, I mean, I told the press after it, I was like, look, you have to understand where the alt-right's coming from. Like there, there is a tremendous amount of irony in this. You know, it, it's a, you know, whatever. And, and that's absolutely true. I mean, no one there was like saluting Hitler or something. I mean, it was this, just this euphoric, you know, outre, like I'm a badass. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm totally beyond political correctness. <laughs> so they do it. Um, I am sure that you can find left-wing gatherings where the clenched fist of communism is raised after a rousing speech. I yeah, and nobody, yeah, absolutely, and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect to it, which I don't think the press get because they don't want to get, is the dissolving of taboos, which is a huge part of um, the more 4chan poll side of the alt-right. And it's so... When a bunch of people do that, when they like whatever it was, when when four people give a Nazi salute at a conference, that does not mean that they're Nazis. Right. It means that they are. We are part of the dissolving of the taboos of of the twentieth century. Right. It's a kind of overcoming, you could say, of the twenties, like the because it's it's one thing to in say in nineteen forty six to give a Hitler salute. That that is a kind of you're you're you are stuck in the past. You are quite literally, you know, saluting Hitler or someone. No one. I mean, again, I don't know what's in people's hearts and minds, of course. Um, and and nobody, you know, it's nobody some, has a bionic. Nobody has a bionic Hitler that they're going to reanimate in in twenty seventeen. Exactly. It, it, it's not. It, it, they're not. I don't know what this in their hearts and minds, but they're they're not literally doing that. It's this way that, in this ironic way, that they're saluting, and they're they are in a in their own way kind of overcoming the 20th century and all of those taboos, and they're basically willing to say they're say I'm free. Um, exactly. I, I don't live by your rules, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's funny because I mean this is getting ahead of us a little bit, but that was one of the most stressful points of my entire life. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm sure I'll, it will be equaled at some point in the future, but I mean, I'm not sure it will be bested. I mean, it was extremely stressful. And, but I, I, at no point did I really seriously consider denouncing the people who did that or denouncing the whole thing or saying, oh, the alt-right's over. Oh, this is the worst thing. I just, that, that was never a serious consideration because I, I understand. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're going. Uh, the I don't know if the listeners are getting a, a good signal or not. I don't know if it's you, uh, your connection or mine. But yeah, you're going robotic there. Okay. I um, think, um, let's just roll with it. Let's see. Okay. Um, let's see what's going on in the chat. Or where is the chat? Oh God! Um, I'll have a look on the channel. See if yeah. I can get to the live chat. It should be. What's going on in the chat? Not... Okay. Let's... I think we're fine. Go. Um, yeah. Okay. A lot okay. of listeners, a lot of viewers. So let's just uh, we'll just roll with it. 
Uh, okay, okay. So, so let, let's go back to the, the timeline then. The, the conference went by, everything was fine. None of us were aware no. of the, the controversy that was about to break. No. And then I think it was either the day after or the day after that. The day after that? That the controversy broke. It was on Monday, there was the New York Times, which said yeah. that, which reported that I said Heil Trump. And they, they actually did retract that and they were corrected. I didn't, I did say hail. I, I used the English word. Um, uh, you know, it's not Heilgate. Exactly. And, um, so th that, that was on the New York times that, that, that exploded. And then I, I believe it was Tuesday when the Atlantic, they pre-released footage that they were, they, that they used later in a, in a longer documentary that was like 15 minutes or so that had my interviews in it where I was actually in the Willard hotel, you know, wearing a blazer. Yeah. And it was much lower yeah. energy, you know. Um, yeah, but I, th they, I think they, I was there when they were about to record that. Yes, yeah, I think you were. Um, hmm. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I so on that Sunday we all had uh, brunch, and uh, we uh, it was we had brunch at the Hamilton, and everyone was in very high spirits. Uh, every bit of feedback that I got from the conference and the speech and everything was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I loved it. Like, everything's moving forward. Ah, uh, yes, that uh, was my one regret. I didn't attend that brunch for, I, I can't remember why. There was some reason, but I, I, I couldn't attend. That was my one regret. I yeah. didn't get to say goodbye to everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, where where were you? So, go on. I think I had to leave DC with Emily Yukis and she was leaving early. So I had to leave early as well. I think that was the reason. I see. So um, I broke your flow there, sorry. No, no, it's fine. So every, everything was very positive. And then on Monday, I did get more of a sense that there were some, you know, that this is going to be wildly controversial. And then by Tuesday, I got a sense that this was just wildly controversial. and. I remember actually, uh, this is a moment I'll never forget. I was eating dinner with a with Hannibal Bateman, actually, a friend of mine, and uh, we were at a, a casual restaurant in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, the uh, we were sitting there eating, and over at the bar there was a television, and I was on the television <laughs> bar, and it, <laughs> it reminded me of this this Hollywood cliche. Uh, of you know someone's a fugitive from the law and he's like hiding out in the you know in the subway or something and he looks over and someone's reading a newspaper with his face on it. Yeah, yeah. It was twenty sixteen style. Yeah, it was wild. I mean, there, there's no other way of saying it, and it was surreal. I also recognized that things were just you know, I, I, things are spiraling out of control. I, I, I'll say that. And the amount of uh, freak out on behalf of liberals and, and leftists, and then also like both positive and negative freak outs among our, our people, like the, and genuine, genuine concern. Uh, there, were, there were, particularly from the older crowd who supported me, uh, there was a, a, a genuine and serious and sober concern for what just happened. 
And they're, they're, those are the people who I think can actually, they, they can be forgiven for saying, oh, the alt-right might be dead. Because they, they were saying, whoa, this is a taboo. We just crossed a line. This is, you know, what can we do from here? Do we need to apologize? All of this kind of stuff. And that was... That is a critical moment. It was a critical moment, yes. And then there was also freak out coming from our side. And then there was also like energy coming from our side of like Richard Spencer just stepped on the accelerator. We're going for, you know, so it was, it was a lot of things. Um, I recognized that I had to start talking to people fast. Um, on, on that Wednesday, I believe I got a late night flight out of DC. It was Wednesday or Thursday. And um, I, I mean, I I did a day where I did not eat, and from 7 a.m. until 5 p.m., I was getting calls on my phone and just basically speaking with journalists and saying the same thing, you know, getting our message out there. My, my talking point was true, and so, you know, the truth is the easiest thing to remember, as they say, and it was basically like, look, um, you find this controversial. I get it why you find it controversial. It was taboo. Um, I did not give a Roman salute. I raised a whiskey glass. That, that actually was something that was just factually inaccurate. They said, oh, I was saluting everyone. No, I, I raised a glass and gave a toast. But That is ridiculous. Uh, Are they actually implying that you, up at the top of the, at the podium, gave a Nazi salute? <laughs> Some people <laughs> did report that, yes. But to their credit, they were corrected and they stopped. Right, um, okay, good. But I also wanted to talk to people. And I was like, look, people in the audience, they were high energy. They were euphoric. They were also ironic in the sense that it was a way of, of throwing back in the face uh, the, all, all of that slander of like, oh, you're a Nazi, you're a Ku Kluxer, you're a Confederate or whatever. And just throwing it back in the face in this you know, sardonic, you could say, but, but also, but, but also euphoric. I mean, it, it was both at the same time. And I, I wasn't, I mean, I was spinning in a technical sense. I was getting our interpretation out there, but I wasn't spinning and like, you know, that depends on what the meaning of is is or lying effectively. I mean, this is what it was. And so that's what I said. Like, you have to understand where we're coming from. And then the, the kind of freak out from the left was so insane that like, I mean, I don't know if you remember some of these things, but one of the lines of my speech was, this is very funny. This is one of my favorite parts, which is that like, I, I said, uh, you know, I, it's not just that these journalists are, are liberals or whatever. I wonder if they're humans at all. And instead they are, you know, automatons, soulless golem, <laughs> with a unnatural desire to repeat the talking points from John Oliver. And so I called the, the, I called the liberal media soulless golem. And so like, then there were headlines. I think there was a CNN headline, like all right leader questions, the humanity of Jews or something. It, it, it was some really outlandish headline. Yeah, I don't remember that one, but it, it but sounds likely. I was doing the opposite, if anything. <laughs> like, a golem is not a Jew. Like, just a, you know, like a, a golem is a, 
is it's the it's in a, in a weird way the opposite of of what they they thought I was saying. A, a golem is a is a figure I guess made out of clay that the Jewish community would create. It's a monster. It's a yes. Superman or a robot that is used yeah. to protect the Jewish community. So in a way, I was criticizing Gentiles. Yeah. Anyway. If anything, I mean, for heaven's sake. But this is the kind of thing, I mean, this is exactly what happens, and we've all learned this this year, uh, those of us who didn't already know it, that the, the press will twist absolutely anything in the most disingenuous and childish ways. And they don't care how obvious and childish it is. They just do it because, it, unfortunately, it is effective. It works. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, that's what it was. I, so I was correcting the record. I was giving our version of events. Um, but it was, it, the, the pressure was extreme. And I had never in my life been put on that kind of pressure where I was performing, I, you know, I, I was on a tightrope and the whole world was watching, the whole country was watching for that moment. You know, it, it yeah. was, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like those things where, you know, I, I was, I played sports in high school, you know, you, you get psyched up for it, but at the end of the day, no one cares. You know, it's, you know, a couple hundred people in the crowd. No one cares. I've done plays before I've done, you know, again, no one ultimately, you, you get nervous, but no one ultimately cares. This was like a, a high wire act in front yeah. of the world. Exactly. This is the opposite because in in those cases, the the psyching up is the most stressful time. You know, it's the the work, the build up to the actual event. The actual event is often a bit of a non-event. It's it's not that uh, difficult mm -hmm. or exciting or stressful. Whereas in this case, there was no build up really. Right. And then uh, it was just yeah, nonstop uh, storm. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, but I I did. I, I was able to see the end. Like I, I was able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't see it immediately because it, I, I remember got on that plane. I think it was Wednesday on, on a plane going back at, at, at 7 p.m. or something. And I, I, I was kind of like, I did feel like the world was collapsing in on me. And that was a, a crazy feeling. I woke up. On Thanksgiving, I felt better. I, I, you know, on by Friday, I I could kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel, and so I'm reminded of that scene in uh, Gone with the Wind, where Scarlett O'Hara at the the end of the first part of Gone with the Wind, and Scarlett O'Hara says, "You know, tomorrow is another day." <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I'm thinking uh, on th on Thanksgiving, I was in New York, and. Um, Oh God, yeah, the, that was a stressful time for me because the, at that point, the Scottish media had taken an interest in me and they were, right. were trying to uh, dox me. So yeah, that, that was the beginning of that. Uh, the implication, call it that, it, I mean, it, it was like, everything is a domino and one thing can't really happen without the other, but you, you don't know what the, the dominoes, how they're gonna fall. Like, you know, a, a domino falls, but we can't predict the ramifications. And one of the ramifications was certainly your doxing. But at the same time, you know, the, the hail Trump would not have occurred without Hillary, the Hillary speech. The Hillary speech would not have occurred without the Trump candidacy. Yes. She never would have given that speech if Jeb had been the nominee. 
Um, so it, it was just this series of events that are that are unpredictable, and you and we can't predict them, and so we can only react to them and respond, and we have to be flexible. I mean, that that was the lesson also I learned, which is that you can't over prepare because you don't know what's going to happen. Going in, I thought the most controversial thing that I was going to have to answer to was the fact that Tila Tequila attended. Like Tila Tequila became, we kind of forget about this now, but in 2016, Tila Tequila supported Trump and she became this like alt-right, you know, Vietnamese alt-right goddess, you know, uh, honorary Caucasian <laughs> something. Yeah, that was pretty surreal. Very. And uh, I always thought that the fact that I, you know, I, I, she was there, you know, we were being friendly with her. I thought people were going to be like, oh, you're promoting a degeneracy, you know, wh whatever. And I get it, but, you know, it, it was what it was. But I thought that was going to be controversial. That was not controversial at all. I mean, it, you can't predict what's going to happen. You just have to respond to what happens and, uh, and keep going. And so, anyway, th this, this is where we were. Some of the implications were your doxing. I wouldn't be a mad. I, I would. I, I think some of the implications of the whole phenomenon were, were the doxing of Mike Enoch. Um, yes, I mean and, we, we could uh, go into that. You know, first of all, I think it's important for me to say, um, even without Hailgate, eventually I would have been doxed. I mean, the Scottish media absolutely would have taken an interest in me eventually. Um, right. I mean, it's. It, it's you could wonder why they hadn't before, to be honest. It was a bit uh, slow off them, but whatever. Um, it would have happened eventually, but Hailgate accelerated things. And it wasn't, the other thing it's important to see from my point of view is it wasn't just me. It was it was the TRS guys as well. And uh, who else was there? Were any other people? I, I was just, uh, you know, I was dealing with my own shit at the time. So well, things I that happened. You, you and Mike were the major people, and, and that, 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 was, that was the other thing where it's like that doxing jeopardized your life. I mean, your life changed, and Mike's changed immediately after that. Um, I, I had taken a different path where, I mean, I have been radical in the best sense of the word for a long time, and, but I, I, and I had always used my name and face, but I just kind of like came into this slowly and organically and evolutionarily, you could say. Um, so there was no doxing moment. I mean, I had been doing this for years. Oh, yes, uh, indeed. And that, that's, uh, someone's just said in the chat that Emily Yukas lost her job. That was another concept. Yeah, that was another one. Um, in, indeed. Now, on the issue of um, anonymity and so on, that's... I think it's really a, just a, a thing of time passing. You know, when I started, when you started, you th that was not a YouTube thing. You know, your entry into, well, this what became this movement. For me, it, it was a YouTube thing, and I didn't intend, I never envisaged that I would become any kind of figure. So the issue of anonymity just didn't really, I, I just created the, the channel, gave it a name that I liked, and that was it. I didn't realize the name would become associated with me personally or that people would want to know my real name. So, you know, but the, it, obviously now the situation has changed. And I think anyone who's starting something like this has to be aware that success, they will come after you and they will want to know your real name. Yeah. And maybe 
therefore maybe you're better just using your real name from the off. I don't know, because on the one hand, I actually like the whole thing about pseudonyms. I think it's fun. Um, and I, <laughs> it's kind of adds color to the whole thing, you know, uh, well, so to speak. And I, so I wouldn't want to get rid of it altogether, but at the same time, it does leave you with a vulnerability, which is that they can come after you to get your real name. You just do it with your real name from the off, then it shows, well, it shows balls or naivety, but either way, it denies them that weapon that they can use against you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And doxing is a weapon. I mean, that that's yeah. why they're using it. They're trying to give you, they're trying to stab you and mortally stab you with it as well. And uh, well, yeah, I think they want to give you a lot of stress, but really I think the main goal of it is not to damage the person themselves, but to scare everyone else mm. into thinking, well, the same thing will happen to you. Mm. Um, and so I, I, it's, a, it's a deterrent, I think. Um, and also they do want, I mean, it would be a check, the icing on the cake for them would be if the person being doxxed. Yes. Um, so there was no question for me, there was no question of stopping. Uh, um, I did think that maybe I would lose the channel. Was the, I was never going to stop. So, because obviously if you do that, then you've given them exactly what they wanted and they've won. Yeah. You know, it's the worst thing you could do is to stop after you've been doxxed, especially because after that point, you've not really got anything to lose anymore. I mean, I don't know what the prospects are of having a normal life after you've been doxxed, um, but I think it's rather unlikely. Um, so you may as well just continue. Yeah. Put your foot in the accelerator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's so, um, you know, it's, it's, it kind of, it's, everyone has a different story and a, and a different path, you know, into this, yes. um, you know, and I was doxxed in a, in a, in a way, in the sense that I went from being a, someone that people had maybe heard of people in the, many people in the conservative movement certainly knew who I was. Um, and the, you know, some other intellectuals knew who I was, but I mean, your average, you know, Joe or Jane in the Midwest certainly had never heard of the name Richard Spencer or Alt-Right or something. And so I, I had a doxing of sorts in, this, in the sense of going from, you know, and, and that was the moment. I mean, Hailgate was the moment when that, when that happened, uh, going from like an, an obscure writer and publisher and journalist to, Oh, the, you know, Richard Spencer, you know, said this, which is, you know, an unqualified, no adjective needed, you know, this is, you know, Voldemort or, you know, Aaron yeah. Stafford or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, that, that was a, a kind of doxing and, and basically Hailgate did that. I mean, I, I've talked about this before. I mean, um, I had spoken at colleges previously uh, you know, I'd spoke at Vanderbilt, at the University of Rhode Island, or Providence College, I believe. And um, th that was great. But that did not make international headlines or news. It was, it was what it was. But when Texas A&M happened in early December, I mean, we went from, you know, I go to campus. There's a couple dozen people in the audience. I talked to some kids. And, but I can walk around campus, no one, no one recognized me, it's not a big deal, the campus is not shaking. There's some Antifa protests, but 
nothing really tremendous, certainly nothing violent, to Texas A&M, the entire campus shuts down, the president denounces me, there's an there's a alternative event with like R&B singers in the stadium. <laughs> but what date was that? I'm wondering how close in time it was to Yeah. Right, so it's like two weeks later. Yeah, it felt like the next day though, because time had accelerated at that point. Of course. Yeah, of course. Well, that's, that is, I mean, I remember, you know, at the time, obviously I was worried for my own health as well, my, my own life and all that, but also I was worried about the movement. And um, I think that the, to get back to what you said earlier, the, the older people, the older generation, yes, you could understand their apprehension and their fear and the question of whether there should just be apologies. Right. I personally think that would have been a terrible idea because, I mean, yes, that you can understand why they would have done that. You know, their generation, their mentality. But for our mentality, our attitude, and our generation, it would be a terrible error for All us to right apologize. Would be over. If I had apologized or, you know, hung up my cleats and gone home, uh, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to equate the alt right with me and say that they're one and the same. I'm not saying that. But an apology at that point, or a a, a, a uh, like abdication, effectively, would have been that would have been a death blow to the alt right. I agree because it would have been a, it would have been cucking, cockery, and then yeah. from that point on, you know, this is the thing. It's a feedback thing. If you cuck, then you start to see yourself as a cuck, and everyone else sees you as a cuck, and you know, it's like learned cowardice. Yeah. So then you're in that mentality. Then you're on the defensive, um, and I think that's this. That's why it was essential that we didn't apologize, and it's why I fucking didn't apologize when uh, the media came for me. Right. Um, because it's the worst thing you can do. You've put yourself then in the uh, in the position, well, being the prey. Right. Uh, you've kind of submitted to that. So I can understand why they wanted, that the older people thought that it was the only option. 10, 20 years before, or even five years before, it really would have been the only option because the alt-right didn't exist then as a, it didn't have the strength then to be, to, to have, to be so arrogant, frankly. But, by 2016 it did, and certainly by late 2016 it did. And I think it was essential to be that ballsy. Um, we're still here, it was we're also still here now. earlier not to be Hitler idiots. You know, I mean, I, you know, if, if anyone had yeah. directly associated themselves with Nazi. I mean, I, I don't think anyone should directly associate themselves with Nazism now for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's stupid. It's unnecessary. It's just, it's just, it's an unforced error. Also, it's just living in the past. I mean, it's like, it would be like a, a, the Black Lives Matter adopting Stalinism or something. It's just, it just, it's, it's moronic. Uh, so I get it. But I, I also get it why someone 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, wanted to just totally dissociate themselves from anything like national socialism. You know, uh, I, 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 I think that was absolutely necessary. And I don't think we should further associate ourselves with it. Um, oh, I agree, I agree. It, it's, it's really a question of not apologizing for being 
edgy and provocative. And yeah, we're, we're now dealing with the generation, Generation Z, Z, to, to a great extent. They don't have time for taboos. I mean, obviously, we can talk about the SGWs, yes, right. yes, yes. But in general, and certainly in it, this is getting more and more the case with the with the young ones, the teenagers. If you cuck out, then they they immediately will register that as a sign that okay, you're not serious. There's no point listening to you because you don't have the balls. And so I, I certainly think, on the one hand, don't be reckless. And, you know, I I do think the Nazi memorabilia and regalia is just retarded, honestly. Um, but something. Um, be very careful about disavowing and apologising, because once you've started, yeah. once you've done that once, they'll never stop. They'll, they'll, yeah, <laughs> they'll just demand more and more apologies from you. By the time that they're finished, you'll have dismantled your your entire platform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's basically been what it was. So, anyway, we had the big comeback. Um, in Texas A&M, December, December 6th, um, the whole campus freaked out. Uh, I was, unlike in Florida, I was able to actually give a speech. So, um, you know, and, and the speech, I, 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 if I pat myself on the back a little bit, I, I do believe that the speech um, outlined the essentials of identitarianism in, a, in an accessible Matter. I, I think uh, I, I will uh, toot your horn for you here, so to speak. <laughs> I think that the, the Texas A&M thing was a real triumph because it was a rejection of the demonization that they had mounted uh, against the alt-right. And I think it, and I loved it. And this is why I said to you at the time, you should do more and more of these, do as many of these as you can, because the Q&A session especially was just so much fun yeah. to watch. And it resulted in all these little sound bites that people could share. And I loved that exchange with the Jewish guy. That was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Look, the, the whole idea of like, do you want mass immigration into Tel Aviv? Our movement has been asking this rhetorical question for ages. Like since yeah. certainly I've been involved with it. I mean, this, is, this was not like my ingenious, you know, original invention at all. Uh, but the whole point was that the whole point was that that rabbi had literally never heard that before, <laughs> and so he was like, "Yeah, well, he was just driveling." It was the the phrase he used was radical inclusivism, wasn't it? Something like radical inclusion. <laughs> God, yeah, the Old Testament of Talmud, it is well, liberal documents. <laughs> Yeah, and he was saying, did he not say something like, will you come with me and learn love? Or some, something along those lines. It was well, just so insincere. All due respect, I mean, I have read about the Talmud, but the idea of engaging in Talmudic studies, I can't imagine anything more just insanely <laughs> tedious. I mean, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no. But I'm not going to learn love if I did. You know, no, I, I don't like, think so. Oh, love, I see it now. Love <laughs> it emerges from the oceans of text. <laughs> so, um, anyway, to get back to the point about the Texas AM, that was a moment when I thought that you know, it's like 
with Trump during his campaign, they would throw shit at him, and his response, I think in ev almost every case, his response was just to ignore it and keep moving and insist on his own narrative. And so I think that with Texas A&M, you were essentially doing that, and that was why I, I, I admire it so much. Yeah. It was so, a great yeah. moment. Um, and, and, I, and it did bring, it brought the movement together. Um, uh, it, it, it was, it, I, I, people had that two weeks of recovery time after Hailgate where they were like, okay, this is going to be okay. We're moving forward. And so it was essential. And um, yeah. Yes. I mean, yes, it absolutely was. It absolutely was a decisive moment where basically you choose, <laughs> you choose life or you choose death for the, for the, the alt-right as a, as a thing at that point, at that moment. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, that was that. That was that. Yeah, and that that was 2016, and a two-week period, and then at the very start of January, I got doxxed. Then the TRS guys got doxxed, and then the next event that I would say was notable in terms of what's happened since Hillgate was um, on inauguration day when you got punched. Yeah. Um, because that, obviously, the left made hay out of that, which was disgusting, of course. Well, that also, th that was a big moment for the Antifa because the Antifa were behind us, but they also emerged in a tremendous way during this whole period. And yes, now the irony Antifa is the is yeah, also a household term. Yes. The, the irony is they weren't, they were obviously forming during Trump's campaign, the presidential campaign, but they really became, and this is, you wouldn't really expect this, they became a far bigger thing after, especially after he uh, became the president in, I think that was February, around then. Um, <laughs> so that was really when it, uh, when they, when Antifa became a thing, especially in America, I remember one person told me, um, when I was there back in November, the guy said to me, Antifa in, in America is nothing like Antifa in Europe. They're not as, but I think nowadays they are. I think that's changed now. Yes. And Milo, I mean, my, Milo, it, it's hard, again, it, it's hard not to mention that word Milo and not think about, A, the, the total silliness of Milo in late 2016, like bathing in pig's blood. And then the, the, the pederasty scandal and then everything going, it's hard not to see him. But uh, yeah. Yes, that happened around February the 16th as well, because I remember yeah. I spoke about it when I was in Stockholm. I did a video about it then. That was like the end of February. So, yeah. That was violent protests, shut down a campus, yeah. bonfires, random attacks of people. I mean, just, just there was some girl who was there for Milo and she gets randomly pepper sprayed. I mean, just th this was... This was oh, also yes. a thing. Yeah, this yeah. is was this the Berkeley event when yeah. it, became, it was Berkeley that also created Berkeley as a meme as well yes, in the indeed. sense everyone has to go to Berkeley. Berkeley is the site of revolution. I mean, it's been eclipsed by Charlottesville now, but yeah. um, uh, but yes, and Berkeley. Berkeley was. Uh, I mean, that was Lauren Southern with the MAGA hat and the the, the sort of helmet and, and the gas mask and it all was definitely a step up 
uh, you know, the, the, and there was violence. I think was that when Nathan D'Amigo punched Moldy Locks. That was later. Was that uh, in, that was in May? That was later. Right? Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Just just goes to show why I'm usually good with dates and stuff, but yeah, you know, this year has just been so. It's been, it's been a roller coaster. So much has changed. I mean, the the whole. The, the atmosphere, the lay of the land, all of these things have dramatically changed. We are in a new political world now. Yeah. Than we a new social years. world. A new yeah. social I mean, it's, uh, it is now a very different thing. And obviously, we, we have to adapt to that. Yeah, the left had to adapt to us, in a sense, and they've done that the best of their ability. I don't know if they'll do any better, but now we have to catch up with that as well. I think we are doing so for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then if we return to the timeline, I mean, yeah, you're getting punched and then Berkeley and then me. I don't know where that occurred. Where was that, Where the, the me thing? That was in Berkeley, the punching of Goldilocks. That right, was so it was two things. Yeah. There. You're right. It was before okay. my birthday, and it was before Charlottesville won, which also was a major event because yes. that Charlottesville won launched a new era of activism in the alt right, and it it also launched the alt right as an online movement becoming a real world activist movement, and so Charlottesville won now is forgotten uh, due to Charlottesville two. To a certain degree, due to Charlottesville three, but definitely it's like Terminator. It's like Terminator two eclipses the first one, sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, but Charlottesville one was brilliant. I mean, it it was totally private. Um, it, it was funny because I, I had a number of journalists who wanted to cover me and do get embedded and things like that. And, and I would tell them, I was like, "Look, we're doing this really cool thing uh, on May. I forgot May twentieth or something. I I can't remember exactly when it was." And, um, you know, you could be there and, you know, I could give you some access, but if, if we keep everything private, we don't publicly announce anything. And they were like, oh, no, no, thanks. Uh, that's going to be some tiny little thing. We don't care about it. But as it turned out, uh, on a, in an entirely private manner, we were able to bring, you know, some 200 people to Charlottesville. We had a dinner afterward. We did the torchlight march or, or, or a mini torchlight, you know, procession, I guess you say, right, where we went to the Lee statue. And uh, that also, I think that that made headlines around the world. That announced the alt-right as an activist, you know, yes. body. And that was obviously a huge change in the nature of the alt-right. Yeah. Um, it's one, I, you know, I'll say it, I'm not sure about it yet. I think we do need to get better at, at handling it. As you say, Charlottesville 1 went very well. And I really liked the the photos from it as well. I thought they were it it, it looked uh, well soulful. But then, then well, the next item on my list is Charlottesville too, which was in was that August or September? Yes, it was August. August, August, August the twelfth. That's it. So yeah, and that was. I mean, what what would you say about Charlottesville too? Uh, we could talk for an hour about Charlottesville too. I mean it. I would say that Charlottesville II was ultimately a great thing. It is an historical event on the level of Kent State or other things like that. I'm glad that I was involved with it. Um, 
it was a terrible event. I mean, it, it would in, in some ways as well. I mean, it, the, the death of Heather Heyer is, is something that, you know, we don't want anything like that going forward. I mean, that, that is, you know, it, it's the, the idea that we are blamed for that is totally stupid. Uh, however, Oh, say again. Oh, I kind of the thing, isn't it? That she was shot attack. She's standing off is that she I think we're losing you. I don't know if that's your bandwidth or mine that's having trouble. All right. Just because people are live here, I'm just going to start talking. So, um, it, you know, the, the death of Heather Heyer, a, a, a terrible event. It's something that's always going to be used against us. There's going to be this blood on your hands type meme. Um, uh, sorry about and, that. And, and are, Apparently my, uh, my connection froze. Sorry about that. You're back. I'm back. Yes. So say what you were about to say about Heather Heyer. Well, I was just going to say that it's very strange that we don't, we still don't really know what happened. She, it seems that she was shocked, she was frightened by the car, had, and had a heart attack. That's my understanding of it. That is my understanding um, too. The other thing is that the, it's very ambiguous because one of the first images that that hit social media was actually um, recorded by Faith Goldie, who was at that time with the Rebel. Um, and I, I, we all know her and the rebel through, you know, the alt light and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it showed a woman getting thrown up in the air and, and landing on another car. Uh, and, and there's another image of that woman on the car. That woman is not Heather Heyer. Uh, as I understand it, again, <laughs> it's all ambiguous. So correct me if I make a factual error, but I'm, I'm, don't think I am. That is not Heather Heyer. That woman is alive today. She's fine. I'm sure she was shaken up. But um, yes, Heather Heyer was in the audience, and then she was taken out on a stretcher uh, after, a, according to her mother, you know, dying of a heart attack. So mm -hmm. the whole thing is deeply ambiguous. I mean, I don't. Obviously, the heart the, the heart attack was in all likelihood. I mean, I'm 99 percent sure it was. It was uh, it catalyzed by the event. That that being said, um, you know, for the James Fields who, who's in illegal jeopardy, you know, at this point, you know, his his life's at stake. In fact, um, I, I don't think you one can be blamed for a, a causing a a stress heart attack by doing something. Mm. Uh, I mean, he could be blamed uh, if. Whether he's going to be blamed for malicious intent to to kill and maim, which is a very serious thing, or whether he's going to be blamed for manslaughter that is reckless driving, which is a uh, less dire but certainly very serious thing. That is a life-changing thing, vehicular manslaughter. Um, yeah. I, I don't think he can ever – I mean, I mean, again, if this plays out like I think it is, I don't think he can be accused of murder. Or, or, or causing death, i.e. manslaughter. I, I think he can be accused of reckless driving, perhaps at the worst intent to kill or harm. Mm. Of course, it's a, yes, uh, it, uh, that sounds right. 
Um, of course, it is a matter of what they can get away with because they will want to make an example of him, uh, as they're doing with Christopher Cantwell, I think. No question. Yeah. And the uh, other okay, thing... Come on. Let me just mention this. Someone mentioned this to me. The person who attacked Rand Paul, which uh, we don't even know what happened there, but uh, or I, I've heard conflicting... I, I, there was a New York Times report that Rand Paul was attacked due to a landscaping dispute and that... <laughs> So I, I, it might have even been non-political, but anyway, someone who gave Rand Paul multiple, you know, broken or bruised ribs attacked a legislator and sitting senator. That person is out on bail. <laughs> right wow! Wow! I mean, Christ. what is being done to Christopher Cantwell is just absolutely outrageous. I mean, it. it yes. Even if you think he is guilty of every single thing, he is not guilty of killing anyone. He is at the very worst guilty of, you know, malicious use of mace. Uh, and, and obviously he's, he's claiming self-defense. Um, I was not there. I won't express a definitive opinion, but, you know. Um, but even if he's guilty of the worst, the idea that he needs to be held in solitary confinement and just locked away as a danger to the community. I mean, it, it is this, he is being used as a scapegoat. He's being connected with the death of Heather Heyer, which he had zero uh, to do yes. with. Oh, yes. I mean, th they put it all together. You know, he was there and this girl died. So it must have been an intentional murder that she died. And because he was there, he must be associated with this intentional murder. Mm -hmm. um, th this is just disgusting. I mean, I remember watching... I was watching Fox News, actually, the live stream, I think it was on YouTube, and uh, even before that happened, the car accident happened, even before then, they were going berserk, you know, condemning yes. Unite the Right. They were absolutely hysterical about it. And and then, then the car incident occurred. And of course, it was just a confirmation of everything they'd said, you know, that these are murderous, uh, hate-filled uh, thugs. To commit violence and uh, and well, yeah. What what do you expect? What someone's got killed now? And you know, all added up, they'd created this narrative, and that's Fox News. You know, I, yeah. God only knows what CNN were like. I didn't watch CNN. Uh, I was watching CNN. Um, yes, it, 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 indistinguishable from Fox. And then and then the Saturday uh, of August twelfth, there were reports like Ted Cruz and Jeff Sessions were calling for terrorist investigations. Um, I did, I mean, it didn't, yes. none of that shook out like it, it all, or, or it shook out differently, but in that pitch of high emotion, uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if we were all like mass arrested or something as, mm. as terrorists, as domestic terrorists. And well, indeed and, uh, that, yeah, indeed, and that was what they they tried to paint it as, and then uh, that carried over into the online part, yeah, which was an amazing uh, event. Um, I think that lasted for about two or three weeks, and it was just one thing after another being shut down. Um, I, I mean, I at the time it was just like, wow, you know, that this is we're up against really is powerful. You know, that, that was like a demonstration of the power of what we're up against. And it's obviously yes. not an organization, but it's a culture at the, at, at the least. It's a culture of um, 
Well, what we, as I, I made a video about this, the cathedral stands up. It's what we used to call the cathedral in you know the near reaction uh, side of things, and you know, that becomes a reality when it has effects, when it has real effects. And whether it was an organisation or not, I don't think it is. Um, it did have effects after Charlottesville, so it, to some extent, it became a reality. The, the cathedral became a real thing. It was that was a tremendous effect because that affected my fundraising. I think it affected everyone's fundraising and ability yeah. to use the internet. You know, yes. Radix Journal is still not live anymore. You could blame me for that. I, I've had so much to do that I've just it's it's getting delayed. But like that that was a going dark moment. Very much. Very much. Yeah, Red Ice got hacked, of course. Red eyes, um, tremendously. Yeah. Also, we we're expend. I mean, just to give you a little bit of inside baseball. I mean, allright.com is paying out the ass for serve for our server because we decided to basically, you know, say we are going to get a really top notch server. Uh, it's going to not be a mainstream American company. Like this is going to be our solution for the future. Well. We needed to do that, and I don't regret doing it, but like that, yeah, expensive. <laughs> like if you're, mm. if you're a site that is reviewing golf clubs, like we are paying like 250 times what they are paying. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. I, I think I it's probably doing it, but it's just like this affects us. This really affects our ability to do business. There's an opportunity cost to all of this. I mean, yeah. they did a lot of damage to us. Silicon Valley did serious damage that probably could be estimated in the hundreds of thousands, actually, in terms of opportunity cost, in terms of all sorts of things. Yeah, and this is why I, I really think it's essential that we, that we or, or other people build what, what we call alt tech. It's, it's becoming essential because we are just sitting ducks. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's next. Uh, but if any event, you know, if, if there's a similar event again, another purge will happen for sure. Um, yeah. But I mean, the funny thing is, you know, to look more <laughs> optimistically about it, the things that got shut down are back up. You know, it's not catastrophic. It's very frightening. You know, when you're suddenly exposed to the sheer power of what, of our opposition, but it's not catastrophic. You know, you do you get another server, you get another uh, domain register, uh, get a new YouTube channel, and you just keep going. It's a knock, it's a, and it's a morale thing, really. Yeah. Um, intended to be. Um, oh, well, it's, as well it's as just moral it's moral signaling yeah. as well as on, on their part. You know, oh, we mm. Squarespace. We, we as a web hosting service, we, we would never be associated with Richard Spencer. That, that's just, oh my, oh dear yeah. Lord. You know, we can't yeah. possibly host his ones and zeros in our mm. hard drives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then of course the one that really got fucked was the Daily Stormer. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was such an ordeal they've been put, and it's still going on. Uh, so I say again, you know, there needs to be an, and, You've said this, I've said this, other people have made videos to the same effect, that these companies should be governed, regulated as public utilities, because that is absolutely what they are at this stage. 
Yeah, they're they're not. It's not like where you have a choice of rivals and competitors. There is no rival to YouTube. There is no rival to Twitter, and so on. In the digital age, the the speed at which winners and losers occur, and the ability to get a monopoly, these things are at like ten thousand the rate of what they were previously. You know, the the ability of YouTube to become the dominant video sharing platform occurred almost overnight uh, 10 years ago, and it is not changing. And people come up with alternative solutions, and that's fine, but none of it is changing the, the dominance of that. Nothing has changed the dominance of Google as a dominant search platform since, I don't know, since 2002 or so, when it kind of yeah, won, yeah. you know, or maybe even, maybe even earlier, maybe even like 1999. Uh, so, you know, it, it, this stuff happens really quickly. Uh, you know, payment processors, uh, that's another one. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just winners and losers occur very fast. It is very difficult to change that. And, you know, again, I, I do, I do, I would suggest regulation. I've noted that a lot of the Breitbart types are even talking about this now, including Bannon himself, of, you know, uh, th these, uh, these utilities, these services should be, should be regulated like utilities. I yeah. actually bet Silicon Valley is somewhat fearful of this. Uh, well, th this is a matter of free speech, you know, the, the Thank God there is the First Amendment in America. It should exist everywhere, an equivalent. Um, but the fact is that even the First Amendment doesn't actually... Well, if an internet company can choose to shut you down, then that means that the First Amendment does not apply throughout every facet of your life. Right. Um, and okay, you can understand that. Like You don't want people spouting extreme stuff in, in a corporate environment or something like that, sure. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the public space. Yeah, and um, so again, there there is. I think there is a need for this. And the other part of it, and I think I've said this before in some of my videos, is that when, as I said earlier, we're now dealing with generations who are not accustomed to having their speech curtailed, and uh, the range of things that they can listen to and hear and absorb and read being curtailed. So it's not. It, it's like in the same way that the. Like the EU existed in the, it is a product of the mid 20th century. It no longer makes sense. Same with the BBC. And in the same way, I think that this attitude. Ah, uh, oh, there you go. You're back. Well, in the mainstream yeah. for, well, for this attitude of curtailing opinion. Uh, just as we hit 700 live viewers, uh, Millennial Woes bandwidth goes down. Oh no, did it happen again? It happened again, but you're back now. All right, what, what was the last thing I said? Uh, the BBC is an antiquated 20th century institution. Oh God, I went off on a rant after that. Right, well, in the same way, I think that curtailing free speech today is not compatible with um, the mainstream culture. It doesn't make sense anymore. Um, young people don't expect it and it seems weird you know i think they now react with indignation when something is denied them 
um, you know, in terms of ideas. Now, the internet has done this. This is absolutely an effect of the internet. So now, uh, sort of castrating the internet is just silly. Yeah. That's what I would say about this. So I think it's, it's, it, it just doesn't seem right for these companies not to be regulated as public utilities. And it's the same, you know, I, again, I wish it were the same in Britain and elsewhere. I think it's ridiculous that we don't have free speech. Right? And again, it feels unnatural. It doesn't feel, when you hear about the hate speech stuff, it's like a bolt out of the blue. It's like, really, I can't say that? <laughs> it's uh, because it just doesn't make sense. So anyway, this is a big tangent, but this is what something that became much more to the fore after Charlottesville. And I think that we do need to take preventative steps, which are probably going to be quite dramatic steps. This is not something that's going to be easy to do, to secure our place on the internet. But I do think that, especially for the alt-right, uh, we have, we, we function best on the internet. We, we have the most, I, well, as I perceive it, we have the most success on the internet. If we lose our place on the internet, um, we're, we're fucked. Yeah. So that's, um, that's Charlottesville. And then the next thing that happened this year um, was the Hope Not Hate infiltration, which was announced mm. in September. That was in Britain, and it spilled over into America as well. That was, again, you see, when, when Hope Not Hate first took an interest in me in 2015, um, they seemed very much like dinosaurs, like they were stuck in the 90s, and they didn't really understand this whole culture of online stuff. And I think they didn't. But they, um, they rapidly got up to speed with it, in a sense. They realized, well, they're still real people, so um, we can infiltrate them. And um, that, was, that was eerie. And then they did the, the ITV, a channel in Britain, did the same thing even more I recently. I haven't even seen that episode, but everyone who has says it was lame. Yeah, I haven't watched it either. Apparently, it's very boring. Uh, yeah. They didn't get much. Yeah. Um, as for Hope Not Hate's documentary, this, I, my understanding is that they were trying to sell broadcasters, and no one's bought it yet. Presumably, it's similarly boring. Interesting. I mean, it's just, it's just going to be stuff that we've all said publicly anyway, in our blogs or YouTube channels or right. podcasts. So, you know, no, in, in defense of, uh, in, in defense of the, the first Hope Not Hate article, uh, effectively everyone who was exposed uh, handled themselves uh, uh, well, um, with maybe the exception of Jason Giorgiani, to be honest, who got a little uh, wild there. But... Um, but uh, everyone else basically said things that they would have, that they have and would say in public. So I, I don't think it was a bad, I mean, it was anytime there's an infiltration, it's it deeply embarrassing because it shows a lack of security and maybe a lack of personal judgment. Uh, yes. And, and what I would, yes, exactly. Of course, re retrospectively, you think, oh yes. Yeah. He was obviously an infiltrator, but at the time, you just don't think like that. And this is the thing that we've got to change. We've got to become like that to be thinking, what can I deduce from this person's body language and the things they're saying and not saying and, and so on. And also, I mean, also, where, where I am right now, uh, personally and professionally, is, is in a very difficult position. I don't quite know where we're going to go from here in terms of events because I have taken part and organized and attended 
tons of totally private and in many ways secret events over the last 10 years and especially over the last year and a half. Uh, yeah. So I'm not a stranger to any of that stuff and I, I always liked all that stuff, but I thought that we, always, we also have to have public events and I still do believe that. And so there, there was a kind of polemic going on at one point where it was, it was almost like, they're the private people who are the, you know, doing this. And then they're the public people who are endangering. And I was just like, look, it doesn't like I do both and both. They, they reinforce each other. Actually, they're, it's not a either or situation, but um, that was at a point where I could rely on the Reagan building and to, I could rely on them to financially rape us. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, I mean, the Reagan building's very expensive but they are also highly professional and highly reliable. Uh, yes, now, I, meant to ask you, I meant to ask you earlier, did they, have all the NPI conferences been done at the Reagan building? Yes, well, no, uh, actually not, not quite. The 2015 conference was actually at the uh, National Press Club. And the National Press Club is a private organization, it's a 501c3, I believe, and but it's one that's so public in its, you know, mission that it's effectively a public institution the, the national press club has has banned me i mean they won't work with me they right they, they at, during the deplorable someone who was organizing it told me that they kept asking the organizers they go no richard spencer will not be here and they're like no he's not gonna be there and they're like all right just to make sure Richard, you know because they 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 <laughs> <they're kind of laughs> okay i can do you a cernovich but not a spencer <laughs> no he will not be there. We hate him. He's a leftist, in fact. He's a <laughs> man. He works for you, but why are you asking? Are you with oh. him? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Sanovich. <laughs> um, yeah. So the but now I I don't quite know what to do. I mean, J Jared uh, Taylor has has for the last five or seven years. That's been a little. I think five years now. He's been doing events at the um, at the Montgomery Bell in uh, right outside Nashville in Tennessee. It's it's a small state park uh, that has been working well. And I, from what I know, I, I'm not in touch with Jared on a day to day basis. But what I know, they're just going to go forward with that. And uh, and then I was doing the Reagan Building. The Reagan Building is much more flexible. There's tons of different spaces. I mean, we could have a we could have a conference with 2,500 attendees, you know, at, at the Reagan Building. I mean, it's an amazing place. Uh, wildly expensive, um, but also very lavish. Uh, but going forward, I mean, the Reagan Building has reneged on us, and so I don't quite know what to do because. You know the the Reagan Building, despite its faults, is a public facility. If I mean, I guess I could do what Jared does, which is go out to a national park. You know, you know somewhere. I don't want to do that. I want to do something in a city that is higher profile. I don't know where we are. I maybe even Jared. I mean, if the Reagan Building is a precedent, maybe Jared's going to run into some problems. We don't know. Uh, but I do think that we need to do more private events. Um, we are also very seriously considering, you know, making a legal case against the uh, Reagan building. I think we need to do something like that because we need to be able to use public facilities. Yes, but, I agree. I agree. 
but I don't, again, we're in a crossroads here. I don't quite know where we're going to go um, in the coming year. I mean, I know we're going to have events, and I, I also know that we're going to have more private events. But in terms of a big public conference, I want us to do that. I don't want another Charlottesville. Um, I do want another free speech event that occurred in June of 2016, or 2017, rather. That was brilliant. And that was on the Washington Mall. So we basically took advantage of the security state that is Washington, D.C., and we took advantage of that, had a great event. That was a 100% success. Um, uh, I am at a crossroads. I am going to have to sit down with my people. A after this private, privatized version of the MPI conference occurs, I'm going to sit down with people. We're going to come up with a strategy, but... Um, it's it's difficult. I mean, I don't know where we're going to be. I do think we're going to win and we're going to go back to a status quo antebellum and basically be able to use something like the Reagan building, if not the Reagan building itself. But uh, it's a very serious crossroads where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the thing is, as we were saying before we uh, sing, time and again, things happen and people say the alt-right is over or that the, or the movement is irrevocably damaged now and so on. And I think these things might, well, they probably do damage the movement to some extent, each of, each of these things that has happened. And yet the movement keeps going. It just keeps going. And yeah. uh, because I think there's ever more energy being invested in it. Now, and the difference normalized with, in a weird way, like it, yes. it is part of the conversation, even if we're denounced endlessly, the alt-right, or white nationalism, or or what, or identitarianism, which is a the, the less uh, used word, but I think the best, the best, the most descriptive term, evocative term, not the one that rolls off the tongue like alt right, which is a great marketing term. Uh, white nationalism is a problematic term because it it kind of evokes 1990s skinhead culture or something, which is yeah. something that yeah. we want to get beyond. Um, and, 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 you know, for, for someone like me, I would been kind of saying like, well, we're not a nationalist in, in the way that you think we are as well. But anyway, yeah. um, you know, uh, but the, the alt-right and identitarianism, it's, it's been normalized in the sense that effectively everyone who is politically aware has now heard of this term and knows a little bit about it. Yeah. And so we're talking about hundreds of people. Yes, yes. And the things that they can plug into are becoming ever more numerous. I mean, yeah. even compared to this time last year, um, I'm going to be having guests on my channel this Christmas. And uh, a lot of them, their channels didn't exist last year. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, and, and now they're big. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, people who have channels as big as mine or bigger. Um, so it's, it really is growing. And this is the funny thing, you know, I mean, this has been a really trying year and that can give you a sense of, you know, that sort of, it takes away the innocence. It can take away the, the pleasure. It can take away the, it can make it feel like a drag to some extent because you're having to expend emotional effort in, in keeping going. But at the same time, you've got to look at what we're actually achieving and we are getting bigger and better. Yeah. And, and more better at communicating, I think, and um, and there are more nodes of the alt right developing, emerging. So, yeah, even though it seems like a a bad year, and it's it's certainly not been a joyous year like twenty sixteen was. No, 
but it, I think it would be a mistake to say that this has been a bad year for the all right. Oh, I just don't think that's true. Absolute mistake. But it, it but it, it has been a trying year. Where, whereas when b- before, like we were just, it, it's like we were at a roulette table and just like every time the the the, the, the ball was just bouncing under our number every time. Twenty <laughs> one after it, you know, we we're just getting twenty one and blackjack, just you know, boom, boom, you know. Uh, 2017 has not been like that. 2017 has been like a boxing match where it's like we're getting hit and then we're punching and we're getting hit again and we get knocked out but we get up and it, it's it's been much more trying, no question. Uh, yeah. But you know, that's how it goes. You know, we're gonna yeah. probably be we... a lugging match going forward. Yeah, and each but the thing is that we do get better and more. I mean, for example. You know, if uh, if journalists showed up at my house now, I would know how to deal with it. Yeah, um, I did. I had absolutely no idea how to react to that at the time, because uh, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. But now I would know how to react to it, and so th- that's just one example. That's obviously my own personal example, but everyone else will have their own. Um, the fact is that as these things happen to you, you learn. Well, they become normal to you in a sense, and so it's not so frightening anymore. And I think we as a movement are just, yeah, I mean, this is just development, isn't it? It's just growth. Yeah. Let's do this. Uh, let's put a bookmark on this retrospective. And if you okay. are too busy, you can take off. But I was going to address, in the, in the 20 minutes that remain, I am going to address some of the AMA questions yeah, that we I'm have. Sure if it's- 20 minutes, I'll stick around for that, yeah, sure. <laughs> good. Um, are there any good, is the chat just insane? I, the, the YouTube chat, I haven't even been looking at it. Is it just unworkable because there's so many? I've been, I have glanced at things here and there. Okay. Um, a lot of people talking about Gary Young. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that was, I, that was awesome. Yeah, so that happened to Amrain, and uh, yeah. only now is it emerging. It did. That the Gary Young thing was just absolutely hilarious. Um, I also that I mean, that was a way that I was able to communicate the root of our ideas in 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 an entirely accessible fashion. Because at some level, we were just getting into like a a you know fight. You know, I was like, no, you'll never be an Englishman. But the fact is, I was able to communicate a crucial difference, which is the difference between nationality or peopleness or identity and citizenship. Yeah. And people got Yeah. It. It, was that Yeah. Was that interview much longer than it appears? Oh yeah. Well it wasn't that much longer because he left. He it was a little bit longer because you notice there's a continuity era where I'm wearing oh, yeah. and then I'm no longer wearing blazer. Um, it's, it's because it was so hot. It was, it was really hot. I was sweating and I, I was just like, all right, I've got to get, take this thing off. Um, right. but, uh, yeah, so it was, it was probably like 15 minutes as I remember it, maybe a little bit longer. Um, right. And that only, so was that like a chance encounter? Like you went out for a, some, a fresh air? No, and, and no, was it was a setup basically. They, I, I was in, I was talking with the BBC or whatever channel did it. 
And um, I didn't know that Gary Young was going to be the interviewer. So I thought it was going to be a much, I thought it was going to be a less of a hostile, you know, mano a mano encounter with this, you know, non-white person. I, I thought it was going to be one of the typical liberal journalists who asked me the questions that I've answered, you know, yeah. times at this point. Um, so I wasn't quite expecting that. But again, you respond. <laughs> I love how liberals will be like, oh, Richard's so dumb. He doesn't know that Gary is a citizen or whatever. Like, well, I get that he yeah. owns a British pass, a UK passport. The whole point of what I'm saying is that identity is different than citizenship. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 the whole point is that it's a nonsense that he has a UK passport. Right, right. Well, you had the best response, which was, "Will Gary Young apologize for the legacy of imperialism?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> for some for for some for some months. I've been intending to do a video about how it's civic nationalism is a joke because you exactly because you wouldn't expect like a a Somalian migrant to Germany to feel guilty about the Holocaust. No, no liberal right. would ever say that. So therefore, right. obviously, he, they don't regard him as. German in some sense. It, right. the, clearly, he's not as German as anyone else. Right. And so this came up with that with that thing, and so I just said it. I think my words were, Gary Young liked to apologize to Africans for what his people did to them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the crucial thing was his people, not... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was I was pleased with that. <laughs> it got a lot of read. It got I think it got like a thousand likes on Twitter or something oh, yeah, like that. Yeah. It was really yeah. that, that was brilliant because it in a that was like the great that was an alt right thing to do because it was sarcastic, but then it had a point to it. It wasn't just snarky. It it like it it effectively communicated our ideology in a sarcastic tweet. Yeah, <laughs> I am proud of it. <laughs> to that one. Uh, <laughs> there are some. We should just continue this variation. Like you know, you know, when will Gary Young apologize for Cromwell's crimes against the Irish or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, someone was saying it. You know, he should move to. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Pakistan and apologize to the Indians for the, what the Pakistanis did, you know, right. uh, for, the, for their ongoing spat and, yeah. and so on. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs> All right, let me read these. Um, actually, I have a friend, uh, Eli, is going to send me some of these questions from the chat. Um, but I am going to answer a few just from... Um, let me answer a few from altright.com in the in the comment section. Um, okay. Um, I would favor setting up a single international white identitarian party with membership fees divided up between groups internationally. Well, um, I don't I don't quite know what this person this is DJ 1969 I don't know quite know what he's suggesting exactly um, you know we need to 
dance, this dance between just total centralization and then total distribution or decentralization where both of them have benefits. I do believe we need institutions. Um, at the same time, there's obviously a strength in letting a hundred flowers bloom. So we, we need to dance that dance. We, we, I think we probably need to go more towards centralization and institutionalization in my opinion. Um, but I don't think we should ever lose the, the rest of it. Um, I have suggested this idea of a, of a, a true political party that would have manifestations in different places that would be an identitarian block that would be international. You could say global. We the globalists now. Um, I, I do think that that is a good idea. Uh, we're not quite there yet. I mean, we're, we're going to have to have a, a major event, a conference where we talk about forming something like this, but I would definitely be supportive. Um, uh, can gay men who play down gay rights issues and support the family and the nation be accepted as part of the alt-right movement? Would you like to take that prickly well, question? I would, I, would say I would say absolutely. I mean, my concern is always for social norms. I'm not really concerned with what outliers do, uh, as long as they don't affect the social norms. Um, I think, you know, in any society there will be outliers and I think in a, it's probably a sign of a healthy society that there are outliers and that the core is strong enough to withstand them and maybe even benefit from them. I think it's, I'm, I, you know, this is it, I don't like totalitarianism. Um, so that's what I think about it. I mean, I think that if gay men, uh, what was the wording? If they, they uphold traditional values right. and families, well, yeah, of course. I mean, what more do you want? Do you, I, I mean, I, well, I, I, I would, I basically agree with you. Um, and I, I think there's an anecdote of, uh, or, or, a, or a, a saying that I, I believe Jean Marie Le Pen said, which is that um, gays are, are kind of like a, um, a spice or salt in a meal. Uh, you, you, if you need a little bit of it in a society to keep things interesting, but if you you put too much of it, the entire the whole entire meal or society in this analogy <laughs> is destroyed. I think that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I would I would just I I would also agree with you. I, it's a balance, and um, you know I don't think anyone wants to. If someone genuinely wants to help the movement, I, I think we would be remiss in saying no. That being said, uh, I think we would also be remiss in not um, reading, say, Andrew Joyce's article at altright.com about the homosexual question and uh, recognizing the problems of homosexuals. It, it, homosexuals aren't, it's not just a situation like uh, they, it's a hobby or, you know, they're, they're into, they, they play poker, they're, they're a compulsive gambler. Can we allow them into our society we say like well of course you know so long as they don't you know make everyone a compulsive gambler it's fine but homosexuality is different than that and and it it is connected with certain personalities that i i think we should be realistic about um and uh so i would just add in that that addition to that but um generally speaking i i basically agree with what you said it's a tricky issue and it's not an either or on off issue either no uh, let me see a couple more of these. We get that. That question is pretty perennial. Um, 
Um, okay. Will the alt-right sue Charlottesville, the state of Virginia? I think we should consider that, but um, uh, in order for something like that to happen, we need a legal defense fund with at least a quarter of a million dollars and hopefully a million dollars in it. Uh, we don't have anything like that. Suing a city like that with top-notch lawyers, i.e. not doing it in a half-assed manner and making a fool of ourselves, this is a very difficult thing. Okay, here's some praise of Richard Spencer. <laughs> Someone's asked me a question there. Is space exploration the telos of the white man, and should it be the, the animating spirit of white racialism? That this is to do with my speech that I gave at Erkenbrand, where, and some people objected to it. I'm, I'm, right, okay, I'm going to do a video in which I address the various complaints that people had, or the objections that some people had to that speech. So you went did, full Spencer and said that, you know, our future is in the stars and all that kind of yes, stuff. Uh, yes, because Good. I don't think, um, well, I mean, it was both, you know, and I, I outlined that, I really emphasized that in the speech, but some people found it wild and, you know, too out there that I was talking about space exploration, when I think that's crazy because we've been doing it for 50 years, or what, more than that. So it's not something that is far out and crazy. Uh, also, I think it is essential, as you said in your, uh, your NPI speech last year, the white man has something to build and conquer and dream for and, and so on, something that, and it has to be, you know, the more extreme it is, the better. Um, yeah. Now that does not mean a lack of home. Um, it, it just means that he, he wants to more than home. He wanted, the white man needs more than that. Yeah. And also the reason I brought this up in this particular speech was that you can't offer people mere safety and survival. They have, there has to be a reason for them to survive. And as for safety, Everyone wants safety, but that's not enough. And you certainly can't limit the white, uh, the white man to safety, right? That does not suit him. So that is why I, I made a, a big thing about, about space and, and that kind of thing in that speech, because we have to be thinking about the future and the long term. And it's ridiculous to say that the thing we should be aiming for is safety. That obviously that's what we want in the next hundred years. Yeah. But what you know? What is the long-term point of that? It's not just so that we can continue to have safety a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, and so on. There has to be something else. Now, space exploration is just one thing, right? There are other. There are you know, there's everything else. There's philosophical, artistic, cultural exploration as well, uh, and scientific. <clears throat> and these are all forms of conquest, as I said in the, the speech. So yeah, of course those those are true as well, and valuable as well. So that's what I would say to that question. Yeah, I, I would uh, um, counter signal uh, Varg a bit. I, I think um, Varg did a video that I saw this past week. I, I think he'll, he'll often create straw men. And, and he basically said that the, A, he, he falsely believes that space exploration is impossible due to radiation belts. Um, that, I mean, look, I am not an astrophysician, a physicist. <laughs> Um, I am not a space explorer myself, but uh, th that has been debunked. But I, his more, more moral and, and philosophical critique of space exploration was that we want to just use up this planet and our desire to be consuming 
idiots, and then we'll just move on to Mars and destroy that and then move on to another solar system next. I think that's a valid uh, criticism, and I do think we need a sense of, of home. But I, I think in a way, Varg is, is not understanding the, the Aryan spirit um, in saying something like that. I agree. I agree that and people keep like from the questions on the Ask FM of Vicarnas. I answer them because I just can't. Gone, is it frozen again? No, no, you're good now. Oh, no, I think you've muted yourself. Yeah, you've muted yourself. Okay. Oh. Okay, can, um, you hear me? can you hear me now? Sorry, yeah, I back now. again. Right, so I keep getting questions, what do you think of Varg Vikernes? And I don't answer them, on, this is on Ask FM, because I don't know much that much about the guy. Um, now, the other day, he put up this video, and just for the sake of it, I was in the middle of a very busy day. I, was, I had to make three videos that day in order to keep up with the schedule. And so, but just for the sake of it, I made a comment underneath it. I said, you don't seem to know much about the alt-right. And that was it. I wasn't intending to start a debate or a discussion, but then he latched onto it and became, became obsessed with um, trying to get me into this argument so that he could win. And he kept saying, you don't have any answers because you know I'm right. And all this. Well, here's what I would say off the cuff. And because people keep saying to me, when, when are you going to make a video response to his, you know, whatever. And um, I don't want to make a video response because I'm not interested in creating uh, bitch fights. And you know whether we agree with Varg or not, whether I agree with him or not, he is part of the same milieu as I am. Yeah. And I don't really care. I like, I'm glad Varg is out there. I, I like a lot of his videos. Yeah, he does make good stuff. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but I, I have no desire to create an argument with him. And, um, but what I would say is that I think he does indeed, as you said, he, he misunderstands this idea of just hiding away I think is is an innately it's a betrayal of who and what he is basically and what we all are and um in i'm not talking about getting political parties into government maybe that will happen maybe it won't what i'm concerned with is create is creating a culture so yeah. that because then that will create options for us some of us will go into the countryside like him some of us will try to go into politics some of us will stay in the cities and organize who knows but I, that's not my concern, and so I think he's. I think he's just a bit too eager for bitch fights and and uh, gotchas. That's what I would say about Varg. Yeah, I, I think also his uh, real quick. Uh, I I think that his description of the alt right w was almost this. It was almost like Hillary's description of it, or it was a 2016 of the alt right is about capitalism and Trump and all that kind of stuff. I, I think that's what the alt-light is. I think the alt-light effectively is a cheerleading squad um, for, for Donald Trump. But the, the alt-right as it's developed has become a much more identitarian uh, ideology. It's, 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 it's deeply critical of Trump. It, it's uh, deeply critical of capitalism. It's, it's deeply critical of Americanism. It's kind of that, that 2016 cheerleading for MAGA was in a way an exception and not the rule. Yeah, um, that was just on a means to an end. Exactly. Um, anyway, let me uh, answer a couple of these. Uh, these are some of the best ones in the chat. What do you think about personally running for office or having our people run with all these Republicans retiring? Uh, 
Uh, it's definitely something that I have considered. Um, I, I think if I ran uh, for office, it would, it could, in the best circumstances, be an amazing thing. It would obviously be a media extravaganza and thus an amazing opportunity to communicate our ideas. You know, who knows? I might just win. I, I, I do think it could be a Ron Paul movement. I mean, Ron, the Ron Paul political campaigns in 07 and 08 and then 2011, 2012, those set the groundwork for a tremendous amount of money flowing into libertarianism inc now that's been a waste in my opinion it's gone nowhere but nevertheless uh it, it did create something could have could have run like that i it's something i've considered i don't want to go in and create a joke presidential campaign or something like that where i perennially run and lose and it's just that's really bad but could it be done right? Yes, it could, but it's something I'm thinking about, but I'm not going to jump into. And um, in terms of other people running, um, I've been a little bit skeptical of, of of changing politics in general. I've been skeptical of, certainly very skeptical of Bannonism and all this kind of stuff. But uh, if if one can do it and one can communicate nationalist ideas, even in a lighter version than what I would do if I were to run, I think that is a, a good thing. It might be a good use of our resources. But remember, we, we do need to build up a movement. I mean, the, the conservative movement has a annual budget of $100 million. They have institutions, I mean, this is the estimate, they have institutions with billions of dollars in the bank they're able to do things like this. Should we put all of our eggs into one basket like that? Maybe we should, but it's dangerous that we just start wasting money on races where candidates aren't really going to win. We're spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, as opposed to building up real identitarian activists. Uh, that worries me. Um, will there be a spring MPI? I can answer that very quickly. Um, yes, first off, there's gonna be a lot more private events. Yes, I do want to have a major public event, but I, I can't tell you what that's gonna be because we are still strategizing at this moment and we will figure out the best solution. I still do believe in public events, even though we're getting this pushback. And because we're getting pushback, that makes me believe in public events more. We're not gonna get pushback unless we're doing something powerful. Um, what do you think of Wes Bellamy? <laughs> Wes Bellamy is a you know BLM mascot of the city of Charlottesville. He's a total joke. Um, what's your take on Varg's video? Okay, I already answered that. What should be the next part of It's Okay to Be White? It's okay. Um, pitch, It's Okay to Be Black. Oh, okay, someone's just... <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, the It's Okay to Be White campaign was amazing. That reminded me of the alt-right of 2016 and the sense that it was light and fun. And, you know, how could you conceivably criticize us unless you're hysterical? I've talked about this at length on my podcast and elsewhere. Needless to say, I think it's a great event. I don't know what's going to be next. I think, you know, memes like that just emerge organically, like the cuck meme. You know, I don't, I'm not sure I can just come up with something better than what in terms of memes or terms that then just emerge organically. Yeah. Um, but 
I think we should run with the, it's okay to be white. I think it's a great thing. And it's a great thing to just tell normies. And yeah. it inspires hysterical reactions from the left, which is also a good thing. Um, what do you think of the Polish march this week? Um, what I think about Poland and the Visegrad block and all that kind of stuff, huge question, which I won't go into because I'm tired. Uh, but I, I, I obviously, I think it's an organic, wonderful expression of nationalism. I wish I could have been in Poland. I wish the Polish nationalist government would not have threatened to kick me out of the country and arrest me. Um, maybe this gives you a little bit of a hint of my complicated feelings about Poland in general, but um, obviously I think it's what that Polish march itself is, is a very positive expression of something real, something good. I am tired. How about you? We seem to have lost millennial woes due to bandwidth issues. No, no, right. I'm here again. I'm here again. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Um, millennial Colin, I am tired. Okay. Let us sign off. Thank you for being on. This yeah, has been really enjoyable. Final words or plugs? Oh, well, I'm just sorry about my bandwidth. I, I closed Skype. I closed everything. I'm. Yeah, these things happen. Sometimes it's a bad, I don't know, bad weather or something. Who knows? Um, okay, well, thanks very much. It's been very enjoyable. Everyone, go to Millennial Woes' uh, YouTube account. That's obviously the best way to reach it. Uh, but thank you, everyone. I'm going to be doing these things, and Daniel will do some. Other people will do some on an ongoing basis. So this was our pilot episode. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I will answer everything at some point. I will, I will discuss every aspect of the universe after doing this for a few years for all right plus numbers. Okay. I'll talk to everyone soon. Bye. Okay. I, I got this.